0: Okay, live from Loyola University in Chicago, it's the Compact Nation Podcast. Awesome, awesome. Go
1: go Wolves.
0: (laughs) That's right, everybody. We are live from the Midwest Campus Compact Conference. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact, and I'm here in person with my co host So this week, this month's Where Is Andrew is pretty easy. Where are you, Andrew?
2: Uh, I, Andrew Selingson, president of
1: Campus Compact, I'm right here
2: in Chicago, Illinois.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. JR?
1: And I'm JR Jamison, director of Indiana Campus Compact, and I'm right here in Chicago with everyone and in the flesh with Andrew. I often talk about, if you're a listener of the podcast, about going on trips with Andrew because he's all over the place. And that I'll carry a hat. I'll take notes, and here I am today. And I'm half free, so I actually get to sit on the stage next to Andrew. And you, his hat. you do have a notebook and a pen, so I do. That's, yeah, that's yeah. true. Ready so, so yeah.
0: Yeah. So I also just want to warn everyone that there, there's something in the air here at Loyola that has really triggered my allergies. So I'm on quite the drug cocktail right now, and. Uh, <laughs> just don't think I should be held accountable for anything that I say <laughs> the, as a part of this podcast.
2: The so drug cocktail crazy talk exception. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's my disclaimer. Emily has invoked, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, So yeah, we are here at the Midwest Campus Compact Conference, which has been going on since yesterday morning. We're going to bring on our keynote speaker, Dr. Byron White, Byron White, here in just a minute. But first just wanted to start with a few thoughts on how the conference has been going so far and kind of what we're taking away from that. Um, and I, Andrew, we tried to steal what I wanna talk about and I stole it back because yesterday morning, my team facilitated a session with the Newman Civic Fellows. Um, those are students from across the Midwest who were nominated by their president, one student from each campus nominated for their civic leadership on campus. We did a session with them that was just awesome. A couple of them are here. Thanks for being here, guys. And as is usually the case when I get to talk with students who do this work, um, I walked away real hopeful for for the future because we should just hand them the reins now. They know what they're doing. Uh, It was a wonderful conversation. I'm just very excited that we had that opportunity.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I, I have two takeaways so far from the conference. One is not program related, but I worked registration yesterday and I hadn't worked registration for a conference in so long that I've kind of forgotten what it takes to work reg and how like high intense it is. But the other reminder doing registration was this, are, this is some people's first conference that they're attending and uh, that was just really a great reminder that we're introducing people to Compact Nation for the first time and getting to meet folks from all over the Midwest who are coming here to learn with and from each other was just a really great moment. I felt like I got to meet everyone who's at the conference being at registration and just remembering what an important role that is. The other thing I enjoyed was the restorative justice panel yesterday at lunch and the organization Circles and Ciphers and learning about them because I was not familiar with the work that they do uh, here in Chicago uh, around restorative justice and their approach really to storytelling and as someone who cares deeply about stories and believes that it's about human connection and sitting down and getting to know Uh, who we are in a very individual, face-to-face level. Uh, That was just refreshing to hear that approach at uh, a a conference that I wouldn't say um, is completely an academic conference, but because we are Campus Compact, we are very academic-based. So to to see that on stage at lunch and to have the conversations around restorative justice was just a really great takeaway for me.
0: Yeah, it was also fun to have someone on the panel who talked about hating panels, which I really feel like we all could identify with and and kind of made it a little more entertaining too. Uh,
2: Yeah, the love-hate relationship with panels continues as we (laughs) sit here lined up in front of you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I also, I'll I'll go with two as well. One was, um, we had a session that was just billed as like a conversation with the president of Campus Compact, which was a little weird for me, just to be like, you would come and have a conversation. But we had a really good conversation about uh, where we think our collective efforts at advancing the public purposes of higher education need to go. We had several of the Newman Civic Fellows who participated in that conversation and provided really interesting perspective. Um, You know, I think there was, for me, one of the really interesting things is to come to different parts of the country and hear how things look. And I think, you know, the experience of the state of Wisconsin, which has now in some ways become a focus of the way a lot of people are understanding the whole country and a set of dynamics, the relationship between urban centers and, and rural areas and those kinds of issues. Came up and, and how universities can respond to that. So I, I've really enjoyed and learned from that conversation and have a lot of things to take home uh, with me. And then the, the second thing that has been a highlight so far uh, will lead into our conversation with our guest, which was uh, the keynote address last night. So uh, as Emily mentioned, Byron White, uh, who leads now the uh, Strive Partnership in Cincinnati, but who has a a long history both inside and outside higher education, uh, having been in leadership roles at Cleveland State and Xavier, and also uh, has another career as a journalist, uh, really brought insights about the way that institutions, established institutions like universities, work with communities that, for me, having been involved in this work for a long time, were uh, eye-opening, really kind of helped me or prompted me, forced me to rethink a lot of work that I've been involved with and how we think and talk about it. So uh, I am really excited now to have the opportunity to invite Byron to join us at the front of the room and uh, we will continue our conversation. So welcome Byron White. All yeah. uh, right,
0: Hi, we wanna start with giving you the opportunity to just tell everybody a little bit about what you do at Strive Partnership.
3: Sure. I'm First of all, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, and, uh, so, Strive Partnership is a collective impact um, organization devoted to educational uh, progress for uh, children and adults in the Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky. Uh, and so, as what we do is we bring together institutions and communities uh, to look collectively at uh, the transition of children along a continuum of educational um, performance um, and activity from cradle to career. And by working together with a sort of a common framework of of metrics and a common um, set of goals to reach, the idea is that we can accelerate advancement, we can broaden it and um, really reach comprehensive and transformational change for the entire community around education. Strive Partnership was founded uh, a little over 10 years ago in 2006, and it's, uh, it's beginning to really launched a whole network of organizations like this that are part of a, a, sor- a sort of complementary organization, Strive Together, which is this network of 70 plus uh, organizations like this around the country that are attempting to do the same thing in in, uh, cities around the the country.
0: Great, so you were our keynote speaker last night and talked a lot about um, sort of the theme of our conference, which is around asset-based community development, asset-based community engagement, really thinking very differently about where expertise is, who's educating students, that kind of thing. And I wondered if you could start with um, talking about that, and if we truly are able to recognize that community members are our partners in educating students, what does that look like in terms of um, how you know using their valuable time and some of those more tough questions? Uh, once you agree that that they are important in terms of educating students and they are really partners and collaborators.
3: Sure, I think that's an important question to think about time and, and um, how it's compensated and how people think about that, I think the starting place for this work is, uh, Strive Partnership, we think about our role as um, energizing the urban education ecosystem. So if you think about the ecosystem, a lot of times as institutions and universities, we think of that, ins- that ecosystem as an institutional one. Who are all the institutional players attempting to have impact? on, let's say, young people, the, the reality is the ecosystem is much broader. It includes communities and it includes influencers involved in those young people's lives. And in fact, those influencers and the communities where they are have sort of first level impact. Um, so I think the first thing to think is that that ecosystem is working. It's doing something for better and worse, at all levels. I think we can all say, even at the institutional level, there's great stuff we're doing, there's stuff we're doing that's not so great. The same is true at the community level. The same is true among those influencers. So if you start there, um, the, the, the question that we're asking is, how is the ecosystem working? If you start to do that, there's certainly an analysis that says, well, some things aren't working so well. Um, And we tend to, at the community and influencer sphere, really highlight what's not working well. But you would also say there are things that are working. And our understanding of what those things that are working, um, quite frankly, is just, we're less informed. So I would say in terms of the roles of the community, um, one way I think about it is, those things that the community does out of its initiative, because it cares, because it's trying, don't need to be compensated. They are being compensated in a way that um, any of us receive compensation for doing that work in terms of the people we care about or the places we care about. Those things that we want the community to do for us, then I think it's worth thinking about the compensation. And so, if the only thing we're engaged in are those things that are part of our agenda as institutions, we've got a problem. But if we're thinking about partnerships and co-producing, there's a whole bunch of stuff the community is doing and will do and wants to do and is actually better at doing without any type of compensation from us. And another set of things that if they were to do that um, with us on our behalf, would might enhance the things we're doing and and those things might deserve compensation.
2: So that's one way to think about it. So uh, one, one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, I, I, as I said, you really did encourage us to think quite differently than I think we're used to about the relationship between work that's kind of coming from institutions and the ways of connecting with residents of communities you know, and I think all of us, again, within our sort of community of practice, there's a lot of language about reciprocity and mutual respect. So it's not that people just sort of think you come in and plow people down. But the degree of participation and and collaboration that you were describing felt a little bit different. And I'm going to ask you to get into that in a minute, so it's not so mysterious. But for me, one of the questions I was really thinking about was just at a very practical level, examples from your work or things you've seen what this looks like. And one particular area I was thinking about, so I had a bunch of experience working in Camden, New Jersey, Trenton, New Jersey, and one of the big issues that that arose frequently was, you know, we sometimes talk about institutions and the community, Mm -hmm. but there was at least three players, institutions, community residents, who were really there as residents, and then people who led nonprofit organizations that worked in the city, and in those cities at least, they very often did not live in the neighborhoods where they were working. Didn't mean they weren't genuinely committed and uh, understood people's lives there, et cetera, but they were not community residents. But community residents weren't always so organized in ways that made it easy to connect with. So I'm wondering, like, how, how do you identify who are the people you mean as the community? and what forms of organization are you connecting with? How does it work at a practical level?
3: Yeah, that, that's, that's always the question. Who, who are the folks who are there, who are self-anointed and otherwise. Um, so, one, one way I would start this is to say, reflect on, on the organizations and institutions we work for. And if, if I were to come to you and say, who's real, who's not real? Who's in, who's not in? Who's the real person who represents the institution, who doesn't? Here are 20 faculty working in the neighborhood. Um, who do, which one do I go see? To get the real notion of what the university means, it's a mess, right? <laughs> there, and so in, so, in some ways, I think we sort of expect a different level of order from the community than we have ourselves. It's just that we know how to navigate our our level of order. We know the code words, we know the cues, we know the symbols, and the same is true for the community, right? So when you go in, and sometimes in demanding, okay, give some clarity to this mess, like who's legitimate, who's not, who represents, who doesn't, you know, uh, we don't do a much better job of that. Having said that, one of the things that is important is, um, who are, by looking at what the community does, rather than just what it says, or just what it's assigned to do, you you do start to get a sense of, where legitimacy rests in the community. Um, uh, one, you know, one sort of central community organizing question is, if you go and say, um, listen, I'd like to talk with 30 residents tonight, can you pull them together? There are some organizations that can do that and some organizations that can't. The organizations that can are kind of a signal that they have some legitimacy. Um, and so. One, as we've thought about this ecosystem, we've been very careful to distinguish influencers from a community sphere of activity from institutions. And here's the way we think about it. Influencers are those folks for whom, because we're, we're talking about students being at the center, students and learners would identify as having legitimacy and impact in their lives. They would, not necessarily the folks who declares Uh, the folks who declare that they are. But if I ask young people, who matters, who are the champions of education in your life, they would say, this group of people. At the community level, it's who's mobilized people like that to do work. At a community level. That could be, you know, um, an association, it could be sometimes a faith-based community. Um, And then at the institutional level, it's more of, where are folks, professionals, people being paid to do that work? So um, there's no hard, fast way to distinguish this. But the signals of it have to do with how people are making choices. I think where it really becomes difficult is that sometimes the community identifies um, and gives legitimacy to individuals or organizations that are problematic for the institution. Um, Why that person? Um, are they the best representative? They're not the easiest person to get along with. They aren't the folks who really understand what we do. And um, you know, then you know, the real question is, it starts to ask where, where is the power really? Are we willing to concede some level of authority and choice to the community in that, in that uh, exchange? So it's one way to think about those things.
1: Thinking about power, at your talk last night, Dr. White, uh, one quote stuck out to me. You mentioned our, and by our, I took that as higher education, that our newfound emphasis on equity could actually marginalize. And as we're having more conversations about equity in higher education, we're getting students excited about that. And not to steal your word, Andrew, but in some ways, equity has become the shiny new toy of our work of community engagement. What would be your advice on how we best prepare students, and really faculty for that matter, who are working with the students, to make sure that we are not marginalizing communities more so than we already are? How is it that we can prepare our faculty and students so that we're not further marginalizing communities uh, when we have this newfound focus on equity and community engagement?
3: Yeah, um, I, so I have two concerns about this sort of equity emphasis. Um, and the first one, along the lines of what you said, is... Um, so, inequity, especially, particularly racial inequity, is hardly new. And for the communities, many of the communities where we're working in, it is, it is not only not new, it is the focal point of community work. It is the core understanding of why the work is being done. Mm-hmm. So, I think the first part is just a, is a level of humility here mm-hmm. that just says, because I might be enlightened or because I might be paying more attention or giving more emphasis, mm-hmm. the assumption should not be now that the world is. So, as a certain part of, of this, I think, that just starts with... Um, how could I have missed this? Who, is, who has been doing this? And maybe a, a greater level of respect for the work that has been done, mm-hmm. which is very different than saying, now that we've discovered this, you know, we should go gung-ho and, 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 and really make it work for everyone. Um, but part of, part of doing that means um, discovering then what maybe hasn't been known. And so on a college campus, and I was sharing this last night, I promise you that there are folks who have been deeply engaged in racial equity work. They have been working with students of color or marginalized students in some ways. Um, not officially, not because it's, um, uh, you know, a, a part of the, the official agenda, not, it's not receiving awards but they've been doing the work. So one is just to start by acknowledging those folks and asking them, to help um, share and lead in this transition. You know, it is, uh, sometimes I think even at a campus, let's say that where the, the majority student and employment profile is very different from the community working in, is a you know, sense that there are these two worlds and you know, they have nothing to do with each other. But there are folks spanning those worlds all the time. There are employees at the university that live in the neighborhood. They may be working in food services or some other area. They are crossing the brink. There are faculty or administrators or other staff members um, in the university. I'm thinking of my administrative assistant at Cleveland State whose family lives right next door. or, you know, so there are these connectors that exist, and I think that part of it is just, you know, a place to start is, let's really expose those connectors, not assume they don't exist, and really take advantage of, uh, of the assets that we have uh, right in front, of, in front of us. I'll just say very quickly, the other thing that concerns me, though, about the equity effort is that by, if we ascribe to people who lack um, a certain means that other people have, a disparity, and we ascribe to them a, that, that they're making decisions or they're taking actions because of that deficiency, That uh, then I think we can easily bypass the expertise, the insights they bring, regardless of their disparity. So if um, If, if parents are choosing not to attend a parent-teacher conference, parent-teacher conferences in the neighborhood, and we assume that's because they lack the means to get to the parent-teacher conference, they're overworked. They don't have the transportation of childcare. Um, And we say, hey, we're responding to this inequity. We're still assuming that the parent-teacher conference is a good thing to get to. That, you know, if they had the means, they'd make a better choice. So let's help them make a better choice. But if parents aren't showing up at a parent-teacher conference, the other way to look at it is there's something wrong with the parent-teacher conference. Maybe the whole structure of that as a means of engagement between parent and teacher is inequitable. And so then we'd say, wow, what is the insight these parents have that's exposing some deficiency on our part that we need to address? Not the condition there operating under, but the structure we've created, and um, so, you know, maybe the parent-teacher conference needs to be on a Saturday morning in the park. I think that's when you start to get to the real issues of equity, um, and not just sort of helping to make, hoping all folks can make proper middle-class decisions if we help them get the, the right means to do that.
2: Can I ask you a question about where that leads? That is, you know, the, the micro example of the parent-teacher conference is something you could imagine a good school principal working to rethink and create better ways of, of having dialogue between teachers and parents about their kids, et cetera. But you are working with the school superintendent and the leaders of universities and the leaders of big nonprofit organizations. And what's the willingness or what's the need from your perspective to be willing to not just blow up these little micro things, which could be important, but actually to start blowing up things that are much bigger than that and thinking about redesigning systems. like right. how, how deep do you need to go, and, and how do you get that going? Very deep. I mean, look,
3: if we're, gonna, if we're going to play in the inequity space, this is real work. I mean, this is what concerns me. If, we, if, if, if the equity conversation becomes just a new way to help us justify tinkering around the edges, disaggregating data, exposing inequities that have always been a part of what we're doing and paying more attention to them in our reporting, then, you know, we're, this is just yet another, um, you know, we're just pretending again and we're going to be in the same place 20 years from now that we are now. If we're serious about tackling racial inequity, then it's, it's a systems blow-up. If I promise you if you go to a school and tell a principal why don't we change the parent teacher conferences from fifteen minute meetings in the morning once a semester to picnics in the park on Saturday morning, you will take on the entire system <laughs> the entire system this disrupts everything work you know um, um, you know. The, what is work? When? What do you owe? Oh, who gets compensated? Where does it go? What's inside the school? What's outside the school? What's the liability? All of those things get exposed. So um, I think, but I think that for higher ed in this work, this is the work that higher education can do. This is beyond a nonprofit trying to, you know, help a, do a program in a neighborhood. This is where you bring the big guns. You bring, data, expertise, know-how, clout to the table. And if that is partnered with the kinds of insights and passion and commitment on a community level, then maybe we can start to address the kinds of structures that really do lead to the kinds of inequities we're talking about. But if we're going to do it, let's do it. Mm
0: -hmm. So we want to make sure we have time for folks in our audience to ask questions. Um, if you're going to do that, I need you to come right up here, which is going to be awkward, but to pass the microphone back and forth, you can just come stand next to me. I'm going to ask him one more question, and then hopefully by the time he gets done, there will be someone standing here ready to ask the next one. Sound good? Okay. So, um, let me just regroup here. One of the things I loved about what you said last night was don't start anything you, c- you can kill yourself. Don't start anything that's so just controlled by and dependent on you that you could, you know, turn it back off. That means doing something really collaboratively. It also means we might not be able to neatly package what impact we had and answer some of those results questions that are important and we do have to answer but seem to be in tension with this idea of really, really collaborating. So what do you think about that?
3: Yeah, um... the, one of the big institutional hindrances to doing this work has to do with producing outcomes and getting credit for it. And we, could, we can sort of pretend that's not there, it's there. In fact, I think that um, one of the uh, reasons why, when, when this work isn't really legitimate in the eyes of the community, is when we pretend there aren't those objectives, right? So we go in saying, hey, we're doing this thing because it's the right thing to do, and we want to get this done with you and all of this and we don't disclose by the way there's a grant we have to fulfill and there's a research agenda that I have to meet and so forth. I have found first one way um, is to be transparent, is to bring the community in on all of the real outcomes and goals the institution has. Um, People don't believe, I'll just tell a very quick story, when I got to Xavier, the university had bought. Um, a building in, a neighborhood, in the neighborhood where we were going to do some work with the idea of using it as a community center. And when I came on, I thought, hey, I'm going to go out in the neighborhood and tell them this great news about this community center. We're opening up for the community. And so we've got this space. I'm meeting in these meetings. We've got this space. You can use it. The parking's free. It's all good. And the first question people asked was, okay, so is this part of a, the beginning of a land grab for our neighborhood? because the assumption was there's no way in the world the university is just doing this out of the goodness of its heart, and they were right. They were absolutely right. It wasn't the beginning of a land grab, but but there were a whole set of motives, and if you're not transparent about them, people will, will invent them. And so one way is just to say I gotta get credit for this. I gotta produce a report. It's gotta show X. And to invite the community in on the design of those um, deliverables. Now, the fact is that that requires pushback. When you open up the university plan for, for our what we wanted to do in the community, we wanted to build a baseball field, the community said no, we couldn't build the baseball field. So there's some things that go along with that. But some of it is is just being transparent. But I will say this too. Mo- the greatest um, outcome, and it works with most boards, bosses is when the community endorses the work. The community shows up and says, thank you for doing that in our neighborhood. I don't know if it fits neatly in the outcomes or in the logic model, but it tends to heal all wounds. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, really getting to a point where there's a degree of partnership such that the community not only owns it, but credits the institution um, you know, there tends to be a way to, to get past some, some of that, that need for, uh, for getting credit for what's done.
0: Thanks. So we want to take some questions
4: from our live audience. So I'm going to turn it over. Please introduce yourself first. Hi, I'm Robin Grinnell with Michigan Campus Compact. Um, Thank you, Dr. White. Um, I am really personally intrigued with the notion of systems change and shaking things up. Um, having children that have gone through K-12 system, working with higher ed, and now through Compact Nation, we're really promoting authentic campus community partnerships. And as I'm working with campuses, what we run into is everybody has a different calendar, everybody has a different funding cycle, everybody has a different everything. And so as we look at systems change, it's not just one system, it's multiple. And we need allies who can help us say, yes, this is important, yes, we need to change, yes, we need to not get more relaxed on student privacy, but figure a way around this. So I'm curious if you have one example that you can really hold up and say, you know, in this community or in this partnership, they're doing it right. And I know they might get 20 emails in the next week from all of us wanting to know, but is there someone who's already doing this really well that we can learn from?
3: Yeah, that's always the, <laughs> um, I, so I'm a, I'm a kind of a best principle rather than best practice kind of person. But I'll give two examples of, of quickly, of efforts at it. Um, so at Cleveland State, the Office of Civic Engagement there, um, one of the things that we uh, tried to do in order to, from a system standpoint, was um, we wanted to, have the introduction that faculty and students would have in a community um, come from the community. Right? And so the entry point for understanding the community is the community. And um, one way we did it f- was to um, the, there's a, we have a, the, Cleveland State has a um, grants program to faculty doing engagements, engaged scholarship work. And um, in this one neighborhood, we raised the amount of the grant and set a different set of conditions for receiving the money. Um, and the two main ones were, you had to go through the community's orientation, community orientation, which was its own introduction to who we are, what's important to us, and why we're trying to do what we do. Um, and you had, a 20% of the grant had to go to a community partner, which means you had to find a Someone thinking about the same thing you 're thinking about to get started um, and and there's been some other things that have now come on since, but you know the effort there was coming up with some conditions that would begin to um, force a different orientation to the work of communities by um, giving some authority to the community partners. The other one is that your grant proposal. Has to have been endorsed by a, a kind of a community advisory group um, that looks at um, research work in the community. Um, the, the other, though, comes from the other way, and that is um, we did a lot of work in the Evanston neighborhood in Cincinnati, um, Xavier did, and we started to see the community push the institution. On changing some systems, um, so one example is—I um, I, I think I, I can't remember if I told this in the conversation last night—but um, uh, the community wanted to start a um, uh, an arts program in the neighborhood, and they wanted partnership from a faculty member in the arts program to provide um, instruction to the community. And you know this would this breaks like this just messed up every kind of of situation for the university. One of the things that we had done was we had taken time to expose the community, our community partner, this particular neighborhood, to the inner workings of the community. So they had met the board of trustees. They had presentations from the vice presidents. They knew the budget. They knew how um, we raised money. They knew the inner workings of the university. And part of that was so that as they saw partnerships, they were integrating the systems of the university. And so the community came with two requests. They wanted, when they wanted this faculty member, they said, we've looked at the syllabus for the art department, and there's an urban, affi- there's an urban art course. We think it would be great for that course to be taught in our new art studio. So what they had done was they had essentially infiltrated the structure in order to make it accommodate, as opposed to saying, will you give us a, a faculty member and letting us go off and figure it out. The other thing they did was they came at another time and said, we know you're trying to diversify your student body. The, the top, best and brightest um, kids in our neighborhood could help do that. We think you should launch a scholarship program in the neighborhood. Not because, these kids, we should get a scholarship, because you're trying to diversify your student body. So, um, you know, the the thing here is that sometimes giving information to the community provides them with the opportunity to push the system in different ways that you can't do on the inside.
0: Thanks, that's great. We have another question.
2: Uh, Thanks. Um, Name is Matthew Farnhart. I wanted to go back to the idea of equity Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, having ideal spaces for um, you know, instructors and any other um, interested party to come together as um, equal collab- collaborators and then um, how that kind of correlates to um, the current conversation in higher education about safe spaces and how do you navigate um, civic discourse when everyone's idea of a safe space is
3: That's, you know, that's a really great question and one of the things I would ask is have we, you know, how much have we included the community in the safe space conversation? Um, what is a safe space and what are the conditions of a safe space for the community and how does that, how might that jibe with conditions of a safe space on the campus? I mean the campus is a special situation, right, where um, the Dominant conversation or the structures of those conversations may uh, make a group of students feel marginalized. Um, depending on the community you're, we're in, right, that might be flipped, where the communities, um, if the community is setting the rules for what is a conversation. So, so for instance, I've been, I remember sitting in a meeting with um, community residents and. Um, I, I don't know if it's faculty or administrators from the university. <laughs> I'm laughing at this because it was kind of funny. And um, so a conversation was going on and there were two community residents who were disagreeing on a particular matter. And the conversation was getting pretty intense between them. The volume was going up and you know th- this was uh, an intense debate and someone from the university Attempted to step in and intervene and said, You know what? You know, I'm just thinking that this maybe is getting out of hand. Maybe this isn't whatever. And the two women, these happened to be two women um, who were um, leaders in the community, both stopped midstream and said, We do this all the time. (laughs) Relax, right? You know, welcome to the community. We we kind of, you know, hash it out. It's all good. We're fine. So, you know, one is, I think the safe. Based discussion is a great discussion to have with the community, as long as we're sort of open to the notion of what that means and what the conditions of discourse are and how they might vary from campus to community. And, and it might be interesting, particularly for those students who transcend these worlds, how is this conversation had in your neighborhood, in your home versus on the campus? which could be a very interesting kind of insight to the work. But I do think a way to get here is to start with the question of where's the conversation happening in the neighborhood? Um, I I used to say, I I say to faculty and students, um, assume that anything you're thinking about, anything you want to do, any idea you have, is, is already been thought of in the community your job is to find the table where that's happening and to, sit and to, and to see if you might join the table. And so um, if you start with, there's a conversation happening that I might join, not that I might start, or that not might center around my rules, um, I think it's a way to enter into this, this role in a respectful way.
0: Great, we have one more question.
3: Hello, my name's Gio, I'm with uh, Iowa Campus Compact as their VISTA leader, and so I love the idea yesterday you were talking about we have to ask the community permission. And then earlier you mentioned about, you know, let's change a bit the conference system with schools, or like report card pickup or things at parent-teacher conferences. What happens if the community says no, though? So you want to have these conferences at a park, but let's say you're in a state like Arizona or Florida. Where they have the snowbirds, and they're like, "I don't want to deal with children running at the park at you know twelve o'clock. I want my peace and quiet to walk my dog or be with my cat." Yes. Yeah, so let me be clear: the parent. So this this is a podcast. So this is not. I'm not advocating for parent-teacher conferences in the park.
2: Um, my my
3: my point was that uh, a conversation with the mothers not attending a parent-teacher conference might lead to an innovation like that. I don't know what it might be. Um, uh, So, um, but, you know, I think the the, the heart of the conversation is still that um, if the community is engaged in addressing what we want to work with them on, the factors involved might be ones that we don't know, can't see, and can't know. And, and that includes the community's tensions. I mean, it's not, you know, we're talking, I, as I said, this is a messy, this isn't a monolithic place where everyone thinks the same. You go into a neighborhood, and there are all of these organizations, and you know, um, it's, it's not that. It's the messiness of that, though, that is the work of community. And and the question is, what is our um, willingness to get into that mess? Not as necessarily the leader or the driver. Because I think a lot of times what we do is, by setting the conditions of the work, we're insulating ourselves from some of the hard problems. Like the thing is set up, and um, we don't have to take on those things. But um, I'll give you one example of how this can play out. So, a group of students came to us once. Um, when I, This, was, again, was at Xavier, and they said, listen, we want to do a Saturday athletic youth program in, in um, the neighborhood, in Evanston. Um, and we think this will be really cool. It's going to start at 9 o'clock in the morning on the soccer field, and we're going to divide into these three stations and we're going to do this, this." And they had thought it out, and they were really excited about it. And I said, let me ask you a question. Do you think anyone else in the neighborhood has thought about youth athletic activities on Saturday morning? And they said, well, yeah, probably. I said, why don't you go talk to some of them? So we helped them convene a meeting with um, an athletic coach of like, the, the, football, the neighborhood football team, the head of the rec center, a parent with kids and programs and stuff like that. So they sat down and um, they said, Here's what we want to do. And they, the community kind of went, Nine o'clock? You want to start at nine o'clock? No, no, you can't start at nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you can start at 10 o'clock. And the soccer field, and the soccer field's on the other side of Victory Parkway. That's a big intersection. No, nobody's, I'm not letting my kids, you're letting your kids cross it? Nobody's coming across Victory Parkway. Mm-hmm. Well, then we're going to do soccer, and like, soccer, eh, you know, soccer really isn't a sport in our neighborhood. We're, so it's like, after a while, the student said, just balled up the paper, right, and said, have you ever tr- wanted to do a Saturday program in a neighborhood? Oh, yeah, we have. There's this park over here. Nobody uses it. We wanted to do this stuff, and what they started doing was taking notes. And at the end of the conversation... The community had thought about this thing or emerged it or, you know, it's not like they haven't talked about it. And then they said to the students, you know, the students said, well, we could help you with that. You could? Yeah, well, how, you know, we've got all these students. You could bring 20 students? So, what it was, it, it's flipped from defining the project and wouldn't this be great to a space where folks were defining and then they were tapping these students it's like, wow, you could bring this energy and all this other stuff. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think that as, as we kind of go into this work, you know, the central point here is that the community is struggling too. There's not, there's, there's, nobody's got answers for this stuff. This, I'm not pretending, you know, we're just squashing, you know, this thing that would emerge magically if we just got out of the way. Nobody's figured it out. And the conversations are having, happening in the community that are just as disoriented and disagreements about what group and that group. But that stuff is the heart of the, of the work. And if we don't learn to engage it, bring it out, navigate it, and really give it legitimacy, then we're not going to innovate and come up with the kinds of solutions that we want to have. And so. Um, listening, paying attention, not asking what people want, but asking what they do, how they're being, what they're figuring out, what are the choices you're already making, learning and discovering from those. I think what we'll find is an eagerness on the part of the community to tap into the resources and the expertise that we bring. Um, but it's, it sort of starts from, from the inside out, I think, to really have that conversation in, in the most legitimate way.
0: Byron White, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. Uh, it's been so great to talk to you. We have one more thing we need to do. I mentioned that you know the three of us are here in person, aren't usually together, but there's another person here who is responsible for this, and we just met today. So our producer, Naval Mahdi, come on up, Naval. Woo. So she's been behind the scenes making this work this whole year while being a student at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, while getting married, all these fun things. So Naval, you have to come over, and people need to actually hear your voice. You need to say hi. Well, hey, everyone. Um, Well, it's so nice to see you all um, here today. Um, It's been a pleasure working with all of you. Um, You know, podcasting is something that I'm so
3: passionate about. hearing um, Campus Compact's mission through all these podcasts that we've been doing has been so enlightening for me. Um, yeah, again, thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity. Yeah, Naval has agreed
2: to uh, stay on as our producer, even though she's graduating from UMBC, so we're really excited. About yeah, that. so, so one more done. round of applause. <laughs>
0: Thanks. All right, so uh, we're, we need to give up the space now, I think. So um, we're going to close it out. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks, everybody, who's listening. As always, uh, subscribe, rate us, review us, all those good things. Tell your friends.
2: And (laughs) thanks to the folks at Loyola University who helped us make this happen. With uh, with, uh, Navarra, we had a great team working this all out and making it work. And to the Byron White again for for being with us.
0: Yep. Yep. All right. Thanks, everybody.
1: Thanks. Thanks a lot.